Hey guys, welcome to Void of Transmissions. I'm your host, Jason Brazier, and today um, I am graced with the presence of one Constantina Savinus. And Dina, we have known each other for a little while now since I had done the film on your father. Just, you know, thank you for being here. Ah, thank you. Thank you. Um, so, I, you know, uh, let's just, you know, kind of start from the beginning. I mean, you, um, your story is quite interesting. And I know that we've covered it a little bit in the um, Flying Greek podcast a little more in detail. But uh, why don't you just tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Oh, where do I begin? Yeah, well, I'm the I'm the daughter of the Flying Greek, and I am proud of that. And uh, I am from Johnson City, Tennessee, the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. So uh, that makes me a Greek hillbilly, and I'm proud of that too. So I um, work in mental health right now i get to oversee a wonderful health and wellness initiative called my health my trust my life that operates under the tennessee department of mental health and substance abuse services and we are helping folks that are receiving mental health services in the state just uh, focus on their physical health because we know that folks receiving services consumers are dying decades earlier for largely preventable reasons, such as they have chronic health conditions, and maybe they use uh, tobacco or uh, they don't know how to eat healthy, they don't get a lot of physical activity, they don't know how to manage their physical health conditions. So we are helping them learn how to be good self-managers and become the best version of themselves uh, and helping them just make their hopes and dreams come true. And uh, it's it's a wonderful thing. I love what I do. I feel very fortunate every day to be able to do what I do. And it's been a long road to get to where I'm at. I've been in this field for about eight years now. And uh, I went to school long time ago for psychology and philosophy not real sure what I wanted to do with that but uh, I was actually undecided when I went to college and I was just taking courses here and there but I always have been very very interested in psychology and philosophy and spiritual things and psychological things and um, interestingly enough the Greek word for uh, that we get psychology from psyche is actually means soul so they're very closely intertwined and related more so than we even realize um in america a lot but i also am a person with lived experience in mental health issues so i have had struggles in my 20s i struggled a lot with mental health i had severe depression and anxiety and my anxiety was so much so that I was imprisoned in my own home. It developed into agoraphobia after a while. So I wasn't even able to leave my own home. And, um, you know, you, you can't, nowadays it's different with Zoom and all that stuff. But back then, you know, we didn't even have cell phones. So you really uh, couldn't do a lot <laughs> yeah. being imprisoned in your own home. But I suffered, you know, from deep emotional pain and psychological pain and depression, um, anxiety, uh, debilitating anxiety so it, it took me a long time to graduate college because I would go and I would have these intrusive thoughts and and uh, sometimes I, I wasn't even able to get out of my yard before I would just start having panic attacks and so uh, interestingly enough um, my brother's father took an interest in me and he had done some self-help seminars back in the day and he started sort of coaching me without me even realizing uh, what he was doing and he taught me a lot of things and the the most groundbreaking thing at that point in my life was he told me that you're more than your thoughts that you are the peaceful calm awareness behind your thoughts 
and you can let your thoughts come and go. And it, it didn't hit me overnight, but over time, uh, that became just instrumental into my own recovery and climb upwards to mental health, being, being healthy. Yeah. And so uh, the peer recovery movement is the fastest growing profession in mental health now. And Tennessee is very innovative in that we're setting the bar. We've been doing this work for a long time now. And when I came on board, it was a few years in progress, but we have, uh, I, I feel very fortunate because I feel like I'm helping to pioneer that. So I've stepped into more of a leadership role and I train others more. I don't work with clients so much one-on-one, -on -one, but I'd love to help people uh, become you know, better and feel better and do better. And now I'm doing what my brother's dad kind of did for me in a professional way. And I just feel really fortunate to be doing this work so that's a very long answer <laughs> to that question <laughs> no that's okay that was beautiful that was beautiful that was perfect well if you don't mind me asking you know when it comes to something like agoraphobia how does one get past that i mean is it different for every person i mean what works for you if you don't mind me asking i know that's probably personal it it took a while it didn't happen overnight um and it, it actually didn't really develop overnight either. It's something that started out as anxiety. And then the more I succumbed to, you know, well, I don't, I can't do this. I don't want to do that. Or I would get caught up in the uh, the thoughts that were spiraling in my mind and looping in my mind. It, it just over time became debilitating. So it took a while to come out of that, but I put into practice, you know, what, what, uh, my brother's dad, mm -hmm. I called him Papa Bear, what Papa Bear said. Yeah. And also I noticed that, well, first of all, I'm a fighter, you know, I get that from my dad. So I always want to do better. And that will is, I guess the, the foundation of, of how I was able to climb out of it, the yeah. will. So you have to have the will. And then at some point you have to understand that there's hope. So without hope, there's there's no hope. <laughs> yeah. And so talking to Papa Bear and having the will and wanting to do better. You know, I was trying to go to school. I was trying to make something of myself. I wanted to do better. So that was the starting point. And then I started just trying things, you know, um, I put two and two together that whenever I did some physical activity, I felt better. My mood got better. I was able to sleep better. Um, my anxiety got better. And then having that support and reaching out. And, you know, if I was with someone, I could do anything. I could go anywhere. But if I was by myself, I was frozen and paralyzed with fear. So I would just give up and, and I just could not do it. Yeah. But little by little, you know, I just was doing all these things to try. I was trying and I, I finally found things that worked for me. And those things were just practicing positive thoughts, practicing being present, just that understanding that I am more than my thoughts, you know, because at one point I remember sitting in a lecture in college and I was having these thoughts that I thought was like a, like, the devil, like a demon trying to possess me. I it was awful. Like I was having these blasphemous, like really awful thoughts. And I didn't know where they were coming from. I didn't think they were me. And I was just frightened, you know, I had to, I had to get leave. Yeah. And so I was just tormented and tortured by this. So just, and just having him say, you're more than your thoughts and you can let your thoughts come and go. And you're that peaceful, calm awareness behind the thoughts putting that into practice and developing that more and more over time and then finding all these other things physical activity getting back on sugar you know there's so many little things that add up and equal like that mind and body connection and so interestingly enough those are many of the things that we share with my my health my choice my life wellness initiative now you know how there's eight dimensions of wellness that we work in but the physical health dimension has a lot to do with what you're eating are you drinking enough water are you getting a good night's sleep are you managing your thoughts 
positive thinking and um, all of that. So there's a lot of people out there that still don't understand what, a, you know, that, that you are more than your thoughts and that you can let your thoughts come and go and you can actually direct your thoughts, cultivate positive thoughts. And that makes all the difference, but it takes practice. And is that when somebody says that it takes practice, is that what what does that look like for a person? Like, is it just trying to put those push yourself to do one thing slightly different, or move one inch closer to the door, or you know, is what it, what does that look like for someone? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, you know, it's it's going to depend on where they're at. So you just, you meet a person where they are. And then we do something called one-on-one -on -one coaching, one-on-one -on -one peer wellness coaching. We meet with clients once a week and we engage with them, first of all, at the, the peer recovery field, the peer profession. Peers are more effective than most therapists, counselors, and so forth, because we come in on a common ground. We don't all have the same experiences, but we all have overcome something. So that makes us more relatable. And just having also that a client that's struggling, they can look at us and see that we have overcome, that we have managed to get well and stay well over a long period of time or indefinitely. Um, that automatically lets them know that they can do it too. Yeah. So usually when they come in, they understand that right away and it gives them a sense of hope. So we talk with them and determine, you know, just where they are and what they want to do. It's always a choice and it depends on where they're at. And so I would say for someone that might be struggling with intrusive thoughts, uh, for example, uh, like I did, I would share with them what I shared with you that Papa Bear shared with me, that you can manage your thoughts. And then for the week, if they were ready, we might set an action plan of having them come up with, you know, writing down the thoughts that, that they have that creates the anxiety and then coming up with a positive thought that they um, could use. And you know, that might be just all they do for that first week. And then we would come back and see how that went and, and if, if that was helpful or not, if not, what the barriers might've been. And then if it was helpful, we might take the next step if they were ready and have them actually start practicing. So it really depends on the person, how, uh, where they're at, what stage of change they're in and what they wanna do. Um, sometimes just listening and being there and being a support. Support is key. If you don't have people in your life to talk to, um, you know, that's that's really a problem with when it comes to yeah. overcoming a lot of these mental health issues that so many face, not having the support, which is one of the great things about, um, you know that this day and age was soon because we're able to we can talk on the phone we can talk in person we can talk on zoom mm -hmm. so uh we can reach people a lot more these days than ever more than ever that's very true well and you mentioned too that you uh, you're also somebody who's lived with the, the, the experience what experiences that you're okay talking about um pushed you toward wanting to do more mental health stuff did rock of love do anything with that <laughs> oh goodness <laughs> rock of love. oh yeah oh yeah see that's rock of love is one of those really interesting sort of uh intersections in life um, <laughs> because <laughs> after i graduated college psychology and philosophy uh ba or BS, <laughs> whether I had a Bachelor of Science, not a Bachelor of Arts. Um, what can you do with that? You know, so I realized quickly that I had to do more. So I went on to graduate school and I started out as in an MSW program. I thought I wanted to be a counselor, so master's of social work. But <laughs> man, that program is very rigid. It's just 
It's twice as many hours as like a regular program. Hats off to anybody doing that. Mm -hmm. So it was very stressful. And at my university, I, I went to ETSU, Tennessee State University for my undergrad. And then I was pursuing the MSW as well. And it was the maiden voyage for the MSW program. And there was just a lot of stressors happening. We weren't sure if it was gonna be accredited and you know, we're doing all this work and we we're just doing so much. So I took an elective in the storytelling program because in my hometown of Johnson City, next door to us is Jonesboro, Tennessee, the storytelling capital of the world. We have the International Storytelling Center there and the only at the time, maybe it's different now, master's degree in storytelling in the world. So I always grew up with a love of theater. I probably inherited performing like passion for performing from my dad. I, I don't know, <clears throat> but I always had it. I remember the very first play I was ever in. I played Rudolph in the Christmas play at school. Yep. And I, I remember being on stage and just that feeling I got of being on stage. And I just felt, even though I have all, and you hear this from performers all the time, even though I'm shy, I have anxiety and all this stuff, when I'm on stage, somehow all that disappears. So I, re I remember that moment, uh, my first play. And so I, I uh, in high school, I did theater and, and all this stuff, drama. And so I took the selective as sort of a stress relief. And um, kind of jumping around. I, I always wanted to, <laughs> and that's how my mind works. I always wanted to uh, pursue film acting. That was my wildest dream to move to Hollywood and pursue film acting. But when I turned 18 and in my 20s, uh, when someone would typically do that, I was debilitated by anxiety. So there's no, that was out of the question. You know, I couldn't even leave my house. How was I ever going to move to Los Angeles and, and do all that? So, yeah. you know, put that on the back burner and you got to make a living in life, you know, and so forth. So um, I went through, navigated through all that. And then I took the selective in storytelling and apparently I was, you know, good at it because they were like, oh my gosh, you're great. You're awesome. We love you. So I was just, I felt really at home and accepted and um, fell in love with it all over again. And I tried to do both. I, I thought, well, I can, I'm just, I'm going to do the MSW and I'm going to do the storytelling program. And uh, that didn't work out. So I had to drop one and I, everything in me said, go for this. This is, you know, my, I'm coming alive. I feel this passion and um, revitalization. So I'm going to go with this. Mm -hmm. So I, I did that. I answered the call to storytelling. I took about half my classes in the theater department and about half my classes in storytelling. And I compared and contrasted the story performance with the theatrical performance as my main like paper. Yeah final project that I had to do yeah. so I'm out there you know telling stories and, and then I'm in this play again you know with a lead role and then and I'm performing and just became like on fire for performance so after I completed that in 2006 I decided it's time to pursue my wildest dream of film acting so I got rid of everything I owned and moved into a hostel on Hollywood Boulevard. That's what I could afford at the time. I never had been there before. Um, so it was very, very brave of me, I must say, and total opposite of you know what I had experienced um, in my early 20s. Like I, I couldn't have imagined even doing something like that back then. But I felt really empowered and you know, I was doing a lot of meditation, which is also key in my own recovery to do meditation. That's a wonderful way to really observe your thoughts and all that. So I was, you know, doing the work. And then um, when you're a performer, whether it's storytelling, acting, wrestling, whatever it is, you know, you have to take care of your instrument. You have to uh, perform. So you have to be able to manage, you know, that anxiety and all that that you might have and get fully present in the moment. So you have to do all the work. There's a lot of work that a performer has to do to be able to do what they do. So I did all that. I moved out there and I ended up doing tons of background work. 
and you know to try and get started because I'd never done film work before at all. I was a stand-in uh, for a movie that actually came to Jonesboro when I was in high school. That was the only little thing I had done. I didn't understand. And as a matter of fact, when I went out there, I was huge, like, you know, cause your voice has to project to the back of the room when you're doing theater. So I'm out there auditioning and I'm like, Rah! you know, <laughs> yeah. no, 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 no. Dial it back, dial it back, yeah. Back up, because in, in film, you know, I was really surprised because when they're when they're filming a scene, you, you see the actors and they really talk really loud. They're almost whispering, you know, you can't really not even hear what they're saying unless you're right there. You know, because the mic is like right here. And so I didn't understand that uh, at all. So it took yeah. me a while. So I ended up doing tons and tons of background work. But right away, I made a friend on the set of something. And she kind of took me under her wing and, you know, showed me around town and uh, helped me get like uh, involved in this with this booking agency and on this list. And, you know, there's, there's so many different like, yeah, Hollywood's a hierarchy and it's all who you know and you have yeah. to jump through the hoops and, and you have to climb the ladder and you can't get anywhere unless you have connections. So she was like, a connection uh, that helped me get into this booking agency and so forth and then the roles get better and and you know all that stuff yeah but she kept saying over a few years um I think you should audition for a rock of love because she knew about my passion for rock stars for one thing uh rock and roll I grew up in the 80s it's, it's always a thing for me I used to love Oh, the music, you know, when I was in high school, I had the big black hair, you know, sprayed stiff, John Jett, as big as I could get it, you know, and, and just the leather and the chains. And um, as a matter of fact, I was thinking today, because uh, I, I, I knew we were going to be talking, and I was thinking today about my dad and, and the impact he had on wrestling and 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 the the how he was the first like underdog in wrestling or one of the first in America. Yeah. And, you know, that, that whole David and Goliath story. And I got to thinking about that because when I was in high school, I had this rock and roll look and I actually got suspended at one point. The, oh, yeah. the principal didn't like the way I looked. <laughs> and he told me, he said, I don't like the way you look, go home, you know? And I was so upset. Like I actually took it to the school board, but I say all that to say like parents were afraid of me and they didn't like me, but I was a good kid. I, I made good grades and all that stuff. And I won homecoming queen. The drama club nominated me and I won. And I was thinking about that today because that was kind of like my own little David and Goliath story, uh -huh. you yeah. know? Oh, absolutely. And people tell me that I went to high school with now, you know, how much that meant to them because no one like me had ever won anything like that. And my, as a matter of fact, uh, my campaign slogan was, are you tired of plastic people? And I didn't come up with that. <laughs> yeah. You know, and <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Weren't we all just really brutal in high school, you know, <laughs> when it came down to it, especially when the gals were going for homecoming queen, it was always a brutal campaign of some kind, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, wow, that's right. Well, what, and you are right. I mean, your father's story was an underdog story, but, you know, so there is, I've like, I, ever since I met you, you know, there's, I've always said there's always been a kind of a unique simultaneity between what you went through journey wise and what he went through as well. Um, not exactly the same stuff, but it was enough like the same type of underdog story having to overcome things. And, you know, was there anything with with Rock of Love when you finished it? What was your thoughts moving forward? Because how did you get back from there going back into um, getting back into like psychology and wanting to help people? Yeah, I appreciate I appreciate that question. So I did Rock of Love, and <laughs> I mean, at first I didn't even want to, 
I, I said no. I, I didn't want to audition for season two. But then when season three came around and my friend kept saying, you need to do it, you need to do it. I thought, well, I'm going to do it because I wanted, I, I actually wanted to see if Brett Michaels and I had any chemistry. <laughs> and I knew that the show was probably not exactly real, but it would give me an opportunity to get close to Brett and see if there was actually anything there. And I, like I said, grew up in the 80s. I remember standing under Brett Michaels. I would go to concerts all the time here at Freedom Hall. And I remember being there and standing under him in the front row, like pressed up against all the other people, you know, and, uh, against a barricade. And, and he was just be up there. I can still see him. You know, we, we just worship him and, and, you know, so many of the others. But he was a force back in the 80s. And we were just like the girls. We were down there like just praying. He would drop a bit of sweat on us, you know. I mean, he was <laughs> really, really hot, you know. <laughs> and... <laughs> So I was like, I'm going to do this because I was looking for the one, you know, yeah, I, no, was, I, you, I, was, yeah. I was really looking for someone and yeah, I was ready. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, no, I got you. I was laughing more about it, people can't see this, but how you were gesturing about the sweat falling down. That's what made me laugh. <laughs> oh, yeah. He, he, and, and, and I, he did, too. Like, it, I can see. <laughs> bead of sweat on me and it was the greatest thing you know? <laughs> oh man well shout out to brett michaels there all right uh, what took you from there though and like because it's gonna be it, it seems like it'd be an interesting journey going from rock of right. love back to being a um back into the mental health field okay so so all right so what happened was well first of all i have to tell you that um brett kicked me off the show after like the third round because I wouldn't sleep with him right away and I was you know into this spiritual stuff and 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 all that so you know I was I was in this vow of celibacy at the time this is real I mean I it seems kind of ridiculous but it was true it was what I was where I was at the time yeah and I was just being honest and open you know and even though I was looking for the right person to bring me out of it, you know, it was very, I wasn't willing to sleep with him right away. Okay. So he kicked me off and I was mad, really upset. And I actually wasn't going to say anything for my exit interview. I was so mad. I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not giving them anything. But then they put the microphone in front of myself, my face rather. And I said, I thought this was rock of love, not rock of fuck, you know? <laughs> and they loved it. <laughs> Oh, my my wife and I actually we were we loved Rock of Love. We would that was that was our um what we our um guilty pleasure binge show when it was on back in the day. And I actually remember that exit interview. <laughs> um, that was but that's a perfect line. That was great. That that was good TV <laughs> too. You know, I don't blame you. No, no, but it was good. You know, I, I, yeah, that was. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, that's crazy. So I get off the show and then, you know, I'm like, well, what do I do now with this? Because I'm still out there trying to break into film acting and get a line and, and, and stuff. And I made my way into the union, which is a big deal. I'm really proud of that, you know, but. It's hard to get a speaking part. It's hard to get a principal role. And I just, I, I thought, well, now I've done this. Now I made a fool of myself or whatever. Now what? So I looked to see what other girls that had been on the show had done afterwards. Have they done anything? Have they made anything out of it? And one of the girls had a Nashville number for her manager. And I thought, well, I'm going to get in touch with him and see what happens so I got in touch with him we started talking and we fell in love and we got married <laughs> and I moved back to Tennessee and all that we got married by the naked cowboy um, in Times Square on New Year's or sorry on Christmas uh 2008 I'll tell you and all this stuff is just jumbled up in my head like 
it was beautiful. It was wonderful. We got married right away. And then we moved back to California, okay, after a few years. He was in the music business, and I was missing California. And uh, we went back out there. I gave it another go. And the marriage just, like, changed. And uh, things just started breaking down, falling apart, and took a bad turn. And um, I, I, you know, not to go into any major details, but there was, uh, you know, emotional abuse that led to physical abuse. And when the physical abuse happened, I fled for my life. I left and I, you know, I left with what, the clothes on my back and, and my cat and my car. And I didn't know where to go or what to do. I basically lost everything in one day. I lost my my husband, um, the business we had built together, um, you know, Hollywood, because it's it, it's so expensive out there and it's really hard to make it. It's really hard to make it. So I knew that I was going to have to leave, you know, and so I kind of wandered around for a while, the trauma of the whole thing. Uh, really just brought all of the things that I struggled and suffered with previously back to the surface. Yeah. And plus I was in shock, you know, I couldn't believe that it happened. I told him when we got married, there's two things that are deal breakers for me. If you cheat on me, I'm gone, that you can't fix that. And if you put your hands on me, I'm gone. I don't care if we have kids, I'm gone if those things happen. And, you know, the, the, emotional abuse, the verbal abuse had, had started. Um, but I thought it was due to alcohol because he was, you know, drinking a lot more. And uh, most, most of the abuse was happening at night and, um, during the day, you know, we'd be happy. We'd be having the time of our life. And, and, and then at night it, it got dark and, and, and then it got scary. And then one night he crossed the line and I left. So I wandered around. I didn't know where to go, what to do. I went here, I went there. I was in Arizona. I was in Wyoming. I came back to Tennessee. It didn't feel like home. Uh, and that was disorienting and frightening and scary. And, um, you know, just, I, I, I mean, I, I basically had a nervous breakdown and it, it, I didn't know if I was going to survive it. It was, I, I, felt so much pain and and I was so scared and I was so confused um I I didn't know what to do and I went back to Hollywood <laughs> uh I, I I was in my car the whole time making these road trips you know and with my cat <laughs> and just not knowing where to go or what to do and I so I was back there for a while and I ended up on um uh, several times on Charlie Sheen's show, anger management, and but I was struggling so hard. Um, I I was crying every day, and I was having nightmares at night. I would dream that I was back home, and we had this beautiful, unbelievably beautiful, with this billion dollar view of all of Los Angeles. You know, floor to ceiling windows um all the city lights twinkling and, and near the ocean and you know I was making progress and my acting and so when all of that fell apart it was I mean it just it almost destroyed me but I went back to Hollywood and 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 I was crying every day and I was having nightmares at night that I would be back home with my husband and my beautiful home and 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 everything was well and then I would open my eyes in the morning and I was not home I was yeah. you know on someone's couch at one point I was you know someone's floor at one point I was in this apartment I was subletting from my friend that I told you about in Hollywood um you know and at that time and I just really just couldn't handle it I was crying every day I was I had nightmares. I had dreamed that I was back home every, I'm not exaggerating, every single night for a year. Yeah. A year, every night 
I would dream in one way or another that I was back home and then open my eyes and just be re-traumatized all over again. So I thought, I, I didn't think I was going to make it with that point. And I started looking up like online, has anybody ever died from a broken heart? Because I could just like feel the life force going out of me, you know? Yeah. And I thought, what have I done to deserve this? And and why does God hate me? And, you know, how am I ever going to get over this and get through this? And then I started listening to on YouTube, a, a pastor that, that I enjoy. And he started just like Papa Bear did years ago, all those years ago, he started you know, saying, you got to get control of your thoughts. You're not a victim, you're a victor. And, you know, so it just spoke to me. It just called out to me. And, and I kept listening. So I started listening more and more and more and more and more and more. And, and over time, um, and I was able to get to a place. I had a friend that, that let me roommate with her in a very quiet area of Tennessee. And, you know, because I didn't have any money coming in. And um, so I, I had a place where I could be. And that was instrumental. But just I started listening to this over and over. And I started saying to myself in my head, I'm not a victim. I'm a victor. I'm not a victim. I'm a victor. And I just started doing that and spending time in nature and then started doing the things, you know, that I have to do again, um, getting exercise eating healthy but the thinking was really what started turning it around and then um I had to go to court with him back and forth you know and um it was just awful I mean it was just one of the most darkest times in my life and I literally didn't know if I was ever going to get out of it so <laughs> this is a long a long answer again to your question. No, it's fine. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> so eventually, um, so I have four brothers on my mom's side, and one of them, the dad is Papa Bear, and the other three, the dad is Daddy Wayne. So my mom was married two times previously and had four boys out of that. So my brothers, three brothers, dad, Daddy Wayne. I was nearing the end of his life in Johnson City, uh, here where I'm from. And so I decided to come back here to Johnson City and rent a tiny little apartment. I was able to squeeze out $1,000 a month alimony from my ex-husband for one year. That's what I got out of the marriage. Even though we built this successful business together, he was able to hide the money and yada, yada, yada. And so I, I said, that's fine. I'll, I'll take that. So I got myself a little apartment and I helped my daddy Wayne die. And, you know, I, that was the first time I'd ever went through that, administered the morphine and, you know, just experienced someone dying. I mean, I, I've lost people before, but I mean, at, at the bedside of someone dying and, and actually helping them die. So that took my focus off of me and onto him for a while. And I was applying for jobs. I mean, applying and applying and applying and not getting any callbacks whatsoever. I mean, I was getting so frustrated. And then the very last month that my final alimony check was coming in and I committed to this little tiny apartment, um, Literally that week, I got an interview and this was the point where I was exhausted and I was just, I, I was trying to impress by putting this and that on the resume and say all the right things and, you know, yada, yada, yada. And by the time I filled out, had filled out this one, I was tired. So I was like, you know, and I had to use my ex-husband as a reference because I hadn't had a real job in years you know I was out there pursuing film acting but I he he we could only communicate via email because there was a restraining order involved so I asked him if he would be a reference and he said he would and so I like I said I was tired and I was just 
like, I'm just going to put whatever on this. So I said, well, you can call my ex-husband, but depending on his mood, it may or may not be a good reference. I mean, I was just saying whatever. And yeah. that's the one I got a call back from. Oh, really? <laughs> you know? yeah. and, and she was like, am I the So I got the job for this pure wellness coach position. And it was at, remember I said I was that I'm a victor, not a victim. You know, that became a mantra for me that I just said over and over and over. I got a job and the office, my office was in the Victory Center. You know, I mean, it was, this is, this, this work I was absolutely called to do. And all of the people in this field, the peer recovery field, I hear this over and over and over. When I got this job, I was about to lose hope and I've been called into this position and this position is, has saved my life. And this, this position has also let me know that what I have struggled through and gone through in my life was not for nothing. And now I'm able to take all that and use it to help others. So, yeah, so I, I get to tell my recovery story, not only from when I was in my 20s, but also when I was, you know, then in my 30s and early 40s. And so, you know, I overcame that dark moment uh, with the, the trauma of, you know, my divorce and the abuse and leaving and not knowing what I was going to do and struggling. And um, now I, I can use all that, just like the Phoenix story, you know, that the Phoenix is our emblem in recovery. Uh, the phoenix uh, sets itself on fire and burns itself to the ground every thousand years or every so often. It rises from the ashes. So it's nothing but ashes, you know, mm -hmm. but it doesn't stop there. It takes those ashes and uses it as a foundation to build a better, stronger version, more powerful version, more true version of itself. So that's, you know, I mean, it's, it, it's a miracle, really, that, uh, that I'm in this field. And it's, it's such a tremendous blessing. And it, it's actually absolutely divinely uh, designed. I have no doubt that I was called into this field. And, you know, to do the work, you have to have had at least a bachelor's degree in the in something related to psychology uh, I have a master's in storytelling and uh, you might not think that storytelling is related to psychology but it is oh, it's no, I, oh yeah I can no I, if anybody no, I, I strongly know that that's quite true because storytelling no matter what age you're at is a very powerful tool that can help you work through a lot of emotions and things that you might not realize or you're thinking about so no, I get that 100%. And, you know, that's also something else I wanted to touch on too with this. And thank you for sharing all of that because I know that was a lot, you know, um, hard to talk about. And you've been doing a lot more, a lot of art as therapy lately. What is it with, um, how does art, whether it's painting music or anything writing storytelling you know what is it that you think really helps people um with with mental health uh well thank you well as you know art is very cathartic cathartic how do you say that word <laughs> cathartic yes cathartic <laughs> art expresses things that can't always be expressed with words i mean you can use you know words uh, obviously with acting storytelling usually those words point to something even bigger you know you get into the archetypes and and all that stuff so um those even those words usually point to something in the soul something bigger than us and so art in itself we do an event called art for awareness in tennessee every year a lot of folks in recovery are very talented artists and art is very use a useful tool when it comes to trauma recovery and there's a wonderful program that I get to work with and facilitate called first aid arts and you can check that out at firstaidarts.org if you want to 
and it uh, draws upon a variety of different art forms from painting, drawing, coloring, music, movement, um, you know, talking is a form of art. But when it comes to painting in particular, it's something that uh, I never tried before. I didn't feel like I had any talent in it at all. It was very intimidating. And going to art for awareness over the last, you know, eight years or so, I just thought, you know, I'm going to give this a try. Why not? I, it's something I've always wanted to do. It's something I've always admired. You know, I love colors and I love um, expressing myself. You know, there's just something so therapeutic. Yeah. Well, just having something in your soul that wants to come out and then just, just finding a way to get it out, whether it's having a conversation with someone you trust or, you know, getting something off your chest or yeah. whether it's, I don't know, you know, just whatever it is, whatever it is. So I, I set a goal that I was going to uh, learn uh, one thing and that was, I chose watercolor art. So I started um, watching tutorials on, on YouTube. Yep. And I thought, well, I can do this. You know, I can start small. I can do this. And I love watercolor. And there's a wonderful uh, person that also uh, came into my life through the work that I do. She's an artist. And she taught us a technique that anyone can do. And it's all about just going with the flow, not being attached to the outcome, just having childlike wonder when it comes to putting that brush on the paper, you know, and you can do whatever with it. You can spray it with water and just yeah. watch it, you know, flow or, yeah. you know, you can turn it upside down, you can smush it together and you can do all this stuff. So just letting go of the need to, 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 to be perfect or have like, yeah. you know, be a Picasso or whatever. I just decided I'm, I'm just going to see what happens. And, and yeah. I 100% understand that mindset because i was seeing something on years ago or four or five years ago i saw people on social media doing fluid art and i was like man that looks like fun like i can't I'd, i probably could paint and i have tried painting and i know i could probably do it if i kept trying to do it but um i started just doing fluid art one day and then once i kind of got the idea of it down i started adding my own twists to it, you know, and I called it paint slinging. I don't know what else to, if there's a professional term, but I would get the paint on my hands or my fingers and I would just throw it at the canvas. And um, then I would also just get it with a, um, on the brush and I would sit there and just kind of flick it onto it. And I just started seeing these unique designs and doing it with fluid art, you know, I could move it around and it would change shape and I started just doing that and I did you know I never knew what I was gonna make but I always knew when it was done you know what I mean um and I I, I need to go back and do it some more because I miss it I just haven't had time to do it but I get that it's like art also meets you where you're at in your life too I think that's a big thing I believe because um you and you know, like I like I said in that experimental film course, you and I could go look at a, the same painting and completely interpret it differently. It's the same thing with song lyrics or or poetry. You know, sometimes I think the best writing is the one like I love the Eagles. I grew up on the Eagles, and uh, you know, some of their lyrics are just so poetic that every person interprets it differently than the way they originally meant it. But they did that on purpose, and I think that's what makes it so fascinating, but also, you know, of course, there's, it also opened up a door with people interpreting Hotel California as a satanic song, which I still laugh about to this day, but um, being able to express yourself through art, and, you know, for me, it was experimental film, whenever I got that involved in the, in that during the pandemic, um, you kind of just find what speaks to you. I feel like, you know, what is helping you express what you're feeling, you know, and I think that um, 
it is cathartic. It's a catharsis. It's always been there. And so when I hear people saying they want to get rid of art programs and stuff like that or any form of art, I'm always very highly skeptical of like, okay, you have other motives here. And sometimes it comes down to some people just get uncomfortable with how people express themselves. But you have to have that freedom to express yourself because sometimes that kind of breaks you free. So um, post-pandemic, what is it that you think has made people's, like what has made mental health like the new pandemic? If you, you know, cause it seems like after the pandemic, that stuff just kind of launched skyrocketed the, the need for mental health service. Yeah. Well, you know, I think, there's pros and cons to the pandemic. You know, we learned a lot that we can use Zoom to do a lot more than we thought we ever could. It also gave people time to pursue things. You know, you're at home, you have more time on your hands. Um, there's been a lot of uh, bad things, negative things that have come out of it. Isolation is still a very real thing. And so people that have struggled with that is uh, kind of brought it back to the forefront. But I wanted to tell you, I before we get too far out, I, I love your artwork oh, and thanks. knowing when it's done, that's it, that's a thing. That's a special thing. I mean, isn't that something? Because you can look at an abstract piece, yes, and and know when it's done. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you before, but I've ruined a couple of pieces when my gut says it's done, but I'm like, mm, it's not quite done. So let me just do this. And then it's like, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you don't know what you did, but you did it. <laughs> you know, you messed it up somehow. And um, no, I get that. Yeah, I get that. But thank you. I appreciate that. But isn't that something when you can put this abstract piece out there, you're throwing paint or what I like to do lately is I put globs of watercolor, liquid watercolor paint on Get, get the paper real wet and then blow it with a straw and then turn it around and around and then the colors like mixed together. One of my favorite pieces I've done recently, I don't know if you can see it, but is this one. Yeah, that's the one I saw. I love that one. And it's, it's just, and I don't know what it says, but it says something. And, uh, and I knew when it was done, when it said what it needed to say. And that's just profound, you yeah. know? Yeah, you, you just kind of know it. And I, it's it's hard to explain other than just saying it like that. You just know, you know, and I think that's what makes it so unique because you can really tell even if a, if a painting looks like pure chaos, there's some beauty within that chaos when you look closely. Um, with how people are... So the isolation, because I know for me it was the isolation that really made me rethink about rethink a lot of things about life and how things are being done and um sometimes i went down too many rabbit holes um and had trouble getting out of those but do you think it's a lot people had a long time to think about not just their situation in life but how they were being treated at work how they really felt at work like they actually had time to sit down and actually think about things and that was my perception because some people are like, we can't hire anybody because nobody wants to work. No, people want to work. They just want to make more money because I think that's the one thing that I struggled with the most was like, you know, the money situation was like, you know, I need to make more money. If you're going to charge me more, I need to be making more. But you have people, you had businesses trying to say, no, we can't pay you anymore when they're making millions and billions of dollars yearly. And you had then they were getting mad that people didn't want to come back and work for them and it's like well i think you probably need to change some things but it seems like they're and we're still kind of dealing with that i think you know with some of these businesses not not embracing the full mental health um help um many have but i know there's still some out there that are still struggling to get their businesses to really care about that because it's, you know, they're trying to, they think it's just another expense and they think people are going to take advantage of it. And to me, it's very much like, well, people are going to take advantage of it because they need it. And I think that's something that they don't want to provide because it's, maybe they even know how bad it is, if that makes sense. Exactly. And so, yeah, the, it's so complex, you know, the pandemic 
taught us a lot of things. Um, well, those of us that struggle with anxiety, depression, and we're all traumatized by it in one way or another. But at the same time, we were able to, when we came, we're still coming out of it, but coming out of it, you know, anytime you experience a trauma, it helps you to define or redefine what your values are, you know, what what's really important to you. And, you know, so now we know that uh, we don't want to spend so many hours commuting, for example, when we, when we don't have to, or we don't want to, you know, that work-life balance and so forth or whatever it is. But the, the money issue is a big thing in my field because we still don't get paid a lot. Peers, uh, mental health professionals, you know, you hear it time and time again, nobody's doing this to get rich. We do it because we care about people. We want to help people. And it's so sad that, you know, most people who care a lot and want to help don't get paid a lot, you know? So it's it seems like it's one or the other. You, you can either go for making a lot of money or you can go for the helping field. So that's really sad, but you know, it's it's brutal out there right now with, you know, prices and inflation. And, you know, I think the last time I was at the grocery store, I spent like at least twice as much as what I was spending a couple of years ago, you know. So now I'm only going to the grocery store every other week rather than every week, you know. So it's brutal out there, but um, we just have to we have to we just have to do the best we can and count our blessings and and just know that you know better days are ahead hold on to hope and 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 just you know try and stay positive and um get creative and uh we're stronger now having gone through what we went through and and that's a good thing you know strength is a, is a great quality and it's going to help us so um, you know, this too shall pass. I mean, yeah. and and just counting your blessings, practicing gratitude, as cliche as that sounds, that's also another really big instrumental thing with my recovery. And one thing we share with others that are struggling, just, you know, take a look around you and find something to be grateful for yeah. and hold on to that, you know? Mm-hmm where should people look if they are having trouble with their mental health and who should they reach out to? That's a great, that's a great question. So each state is going to be a little different. So if you, of course, if you have supporters, reach out to them. Each state is going to have some sort of a crisis line. In Tennessee, we just over the last year have developed a program called 988 so that's, an individual that's, a, that's what we oh, have here in missouri too great mm -hmm. yep. so call 988 if you're experiencing a crisis and someone can talk to you about what resources are available in your community and where you, what your best next steps might be but definitely reach out you know i mean i've been there with suicidal ideation you know several times in my life and just recently after you know experiencing the death of my father that emotional pain it gets to the point that sometimes you just feel like you can't bear it and I was there like a week ago so even though we get healthier we get well we get better that doesn't mean we're not going to have bad days and so that's when you there's, I don't know if you've ever heard of RAP, it's Wellness Recovery Action Plan. That's one way, that's one formula for where you sit down and you make a list of people that are your supporters. Yeah. These are the people I can call when I need help. And this is what I need to do. And this is what I need to do every day. There's something called a daily maintenance plan. So, you know, I need to watch my sugar. I need to get some sort of movement, exercise. I need to go outside for a little while. I need to uh, watch a funny YouTube video, whatever it is you need to do to stay happy and healthy. But then there's still going to be those days. A week ago, I was in a very dark place and I was getting scared. 
because the pain gets so much that you just feel like you can't bear it, you know? And the only way out is just to um, sleep is used to be a big thing for me. I would sleep a lot and um, try to sleep it away. And, you know, I don't, I can't sleep quite as well as I used to, <laughs> you know, these days. So I, I don't use that as my go-to, but I, I, I mean, you get to that point to where you feel like I'm going to have to die. I'm just going to have to die to, um, to, to, to get away from this, to get out of this, to, to relieve this pain, you know, to find relief. I'm just going to have to die. And, um, something in the back of my head, in the very, 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 very back, spoke and said, it's not going to stay like this. You've been through this before. Just ride this out. And it's it's going, it's not going to stay like this. So I think, you know, developing those mantras, positive thoughts, whatever it is, uh, taking that time to get quiet and listen to your inner wisdom, your inner inner voice. Your own inner voice is the thing that's going to pull you through yeah. if, if you don't have the support you need, you know, and sometimes even if you do, the only thing is, you know, you're the only one. And I recently got trained in something called emotional CPR, and it was a great topic that we covered because a lot of times if you start talking about suicidal ideation well I just feel like I need to kill myself or I just feel like I'm going to kill myself or I feel like the only way out of this is to kill myself you know people are oh you know oh we need to get you to the crisis center and we need to yeah. call 911 and and sometimes that's true sometimes that's what the person needs but not always yeah. sometimes you just need to be able to say that to someone that you trust you know and, yeah. and and then getting it off your chest. Yeah, it's like getting it out of your system makes you feel better. You're not going to do it, but it's just you want to get it out. And the only way you can do it is just you have to say it and put it out, get it out of your system. You know, I get that. And everything you just said hit hit hard home for me because it's just, you know, um, I've dealt with similar things too, especially when my depression and anxiety were through the roof. And... um before I made my short film that actually saved my life. And I was like, okay, I'm trying to tell myself something and I need to listen, you know, and you're right. We're, we're gonna, like, I'm on a better path, but I'm going to have bad days. I had a bad day yesterday. I had a wreck, <laughs> you know? And um, I think this is probably a good note to actually end on because, you know, giving people this advice is something that is very much needed right now. And, a lot of people are still waiting to get mental health help when they've already reached out because there's such a shortage or so much they say a shortage but there's such a demand now for people getting mental health help and you know letting them know that there's other options besides just sitting down waiting for somebody to call you you know that's a very important um very important information, especially with 988, which I know was just started here in this last year here in Missouri. So um, definitely uh, write down the wrap plan. That's something that I wish I would have known about. I mean, it makes total sense. So that's good information to have as well. Um, before we go, I want to say thank you because I know there's a lot of stuff that you shared that was personal. Um, but I think that when it comes to mental health, I think the only way you can talk about it is to get personal. And so thank you for sharing. I appreciate that. And are there any websites or anything you would like to plug really quick uh, that deal with mental health that would be good for the listeners to visit? Well, you can always check us out at My Health, My Choice, My Life. We're on the tn.gov webpage under My Health, My Choice, My Life and see what we're up to. And, you know, go ahead and check out what's available in your area and just that I mean, the internet is such an amazing resource. I'm sure there's got to be some resources there I don't know about. Um, so just do the work and find out what's available. When you're feeling good, do the work. Because when you're feeling bad, you're not you're not going to do it. You're not going to feel like it, you know. But go ahead and do the work when you're feeling good. Find out and be proactive about your own mental health. And you know, and and 
dropping the stigma. Don't feel bad about it. Like, you know, I had to uh, actually, I've never had a sick day in my whole, you know, eight years of doing this work. And last week I had to call in and I just said, I'm, I'm not well, you know, I'm not well today. And um, that, that was hard for me, but taking that day off, you know, was, I, I, I mean, I had to, I didn't have a choice, but I, you know, sometimes, you know, taking a day off or two or three and just getting your head straight can really help. But I say that to say, I felt so bad about that, but if I had had the flu or something, I wouldn't have felt bad at all about calling in. You know what I mean? So I'm thank you for the opportunity to share these things because the more we talk about it, that then that helps other people realize they're not alone and the stigma you know, that surrounds mental health issues, it it needs to go away. I mean, we've, we've done a lot of work, but there's still so much work to be done. Um, You know, you you wouldn't feel bad saying I have the flu, but but you feel bad saying, you know, I'm I'm not well, I need a mental health day and that it needs to go away. So just understanding that um, it's okay. We all go through that. And, and don't, you know, don't be so hard on yourself if you have a bad day, but definitely reach out to someone, um, you know, just, just reach out to someone and, and, uh, and talk it out, you know. Well, Dina, it's always lovely talking to you. Thank you for uh, sharing your story today and that inform- good information that, um, people may need to know about that you know there's some that I didn't even know so thank you for that and uh, we'll catch up soon okay thank you you're awesome and I adore you and I appreciate you and um you know Papa he was uh, so full of wisdom and a couple of things I'll leave with you all that he said uh, that sticks with me he one thing is uh, don't worry about tomorrow just worry about today and in another way, he said that is, which means you don't have to live your whole life in one day. So um, that's remember that. That's and beautiful definitely Manoli, beautiful Manoliism. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. He was so, so wise. And he, yeah. he always had a saying. And um, oh, one more the sun. You know, there's always going to be storms in life, but the storms pass and the sun will come back out and there'll be a beautiful blue sky. So it's yeah. just a storm and it's going to pass. It will pass. Thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.